The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. As a child, my guest today would have nightmares about nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. Now, having advised three American presidents about Russia, she is one of the West's top experts on the country. She was born in the northeast of England in Bishop Auckland and is the daughter of a miner and a nurse. On the advice of her father, who told her, there is nothing for you here, pet, she left the northeast to study history and Russian at St Andrews University in Scotland. After St Andrews and an academic exchange in Moscow where she worked as a translator and freelancer for NBC News, my guest studied history at Harvard and went on to do a PhD at the university. From 2006-2009, under George Bush and Barack Obama, my guest worked as a Russia expert on the US National Intelligence Council. In 2017, she joined the Trump administration and worked in the White House as the Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council, where she advised the President on Russia and accompanied him to meetings and summits with Vladimir Putin. My guest left the White House in July 2019 and in November that year testified at Donald Trump's first impeachment hearing. Reflecting on her time in the White House, she said... When your house is on fire, you've got to go in and save something. My guest today is Dr. Fiona Hill. Fiona, thank you so much for finding the time to come on the podcast today. On this podcast, we always begin by asking, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? You grew up in Bishop Auckland. Absolutely, Katie, yes. I did have a very happy childhood. You know, really, I think, benefited from the fact that Bishop Auckland, small town, although it was fallen on hard economic times, the countryside around about is absolutely lovely. And while I'm talking to you, I want to make a quick plug, if I may, because County Durham, the larger you know, region around Bishop Auckland, has just made a bid to be um, UK City of Culture for 2025. And it sounds a bit weird, a region of culture? What? It's because the city of Durham, which I think a lot of people obviously have heard of, Bishop Auckland perhaps not so much. There's you know, the wonderful cathedral, the university, but the countryside all around is absolutely lovely. And after the, the coal mining in County Durham faded to grey, there was a lot of effort to you know, reclaim the land, put green fields and sheep and things all over the place. And, you know, as a kid, my my whole uh, life outside of school, when it wasn't raining or being really windy, (laughs) which it often was, was outdoors. And so I think, you know, just that great um, calming effect of, you know, the big, vast green open spaces and, you know, woods and all kinds of, you know, things that you could kind of go and do on your bicycle that these days you'd get run over by a car because (laughs) the roads are far busier than they were when I was growing up. You know, I really enjoyed all of that. And my sister and I often talk about the fact that we were very lucky in some respects for living in a place where we could just go out, be out and about pretty much all day. And you've spoken of nightmares of nuclear war as a child. So I just wondered, were you very aware of politics and current affairs growing up? Was it something that was discussed at the dinner table? Absolutely. And part of that was really against the backdrop of my family life. And I talk about some of this in the book, my granddad, who I spent an awful lot of time with, had fought in World War One, and he'd fought from the beginning of the war all the way through, and he'd been in the Royal Field Artillery, and he was one of the riders on the big guns, the big gun carriages, you know, with the war horses that pulled them. 
and he'd also been out on Salisbury Plain during you know the intermissions when he was sent to the front breaking in horses and so he was really kind of steeped in the whole thing of what had happened in World War One. Both of my parents were children during World War Two, but the children at that age where they were, you know, very cognizant of the world around them. And they had all these crazy stories about things that had happened to them during World War Two. My dad, you know, for example, talking about planes going over, bombers going over on the way over to uh, Europe, one basically crashing in a field nearby his house. Later on in the war, prisoners of war being brought up to, because it's a fairly remote area, kind of a town very close, and he and the other kids would go and play football, soccer with some of the prisoners of war. And my mum was in this uh, industrial town in Teesside, Billingham, where ICI, Imperial Chemicals Industry, the largest chemical industrial plant in Europe, pretty much. And, you know, daily, nightly bombing raids by the German um, Luftwaffe. So constant stories about, you know, what it was like during the war. And then my grandmother on my mum's side had been during the bombardment of Hartlepool in 1914 on the front street, bombed first by, uh, or shelled rather, by German warships. And the first casualty was her close friend. She was only 10 years old who got basically blown up by a shell. And against this whole discussion of wartime, this is probably why I became paranoid about nuclear war. My family were always talking about war, but then they were always talking about why did this happen? And we would spend a lot of time reading about it. My dad was obsessed about understanding the roots of the World War One and World War Two. You know, we were right in the middle of the Cold War. And so people were constantly talking about it, telling their own experiences, um, what it was like being a person in, in the middle of all of this which made it very real. And then we would also gather around the television when we actually had one later on for the BBC News. And, you know, we'd watch the, the BBC News and then the local news and often we'd talk about that as well. So there was kind of a sort of a sense that we had all kinds of information and conversation about subjects. And there's also that living experience, the lived experience of it, which I'm sure was the case for everyone growing up in London during the Blitz and you know, the stories that they told, you know, their kids as well. Now, you mentioned your book. The title of that book comes from advice your father gave you. I mean, you attended your local comprehensive, but at one point he says to you, you know, there's nothing for you here. Is that the point when you realised that you did need to leave the northeast? Well, yes, that was really um, about that time. But I'd also started to have some questions earlier on because that was just as I was coming into doing A-levels, you know, so about 16, 17, 18, when my dad said this. I can't remember the exact day, but I remember the whole circumstances of him having a conversation with me. I basically got a job in one of the local pubs, probably legally given my age. <laughs> my dad worked at the by this point at the hospital just across the way from there because the, all the mining jobs had disappeared and he was a hospital porter. And we were walking back one night. He would always come and you know make sure I got home safely. But that wasn't all that far from closing time at the pub because things were a bit rough, let's put it that way. There's always a fight or something happening. Often people go straight from the pub to the emergency room across the hospital and my dad wanted to make sure that I wasn't that, that person on the way home. And that's when we would have this whole discussion about, you know, what should I do? And, you know, kind of going to university, which my dad had obviously not done. He'd left school at 14. But earlier, when I was around 13, I went on a school exchange to Tübingen in Germany, down in Baden-Württemberg in the south, a university town very similar to Durham itself. And obviously that was a real eye-opening experience. Tubing in a, though, a little bit like Durham, not in a mining area, you know, very prosperous, a very famous German university. And I suddenly thought, wow, look at this whole world out there. <laughs> you know, I was studying German. You know, I, I, I just basically had this chance to interact with a whole set of different people, including people from County Durham that I would never have otherwise met from private schools and, you know, grammar schools and 
just totally different backgrounds. And it really made me think, huh, perhaps I should consider doing something in international affairs at the time, because this was Germany in the 1970s when the UK joined the EU rather than pulling out of it now. But when we were trying to still figure out through all these exchanges about how to reconcile with Germany after World War II, and I'd heard all my family's World War II stories, and then I heard my German host family's stories. They had grown up also as children of the war, and they'd been in the firebombing by Allied forces of Frankfurt, and hearing their stories, which were really traumatic and horrifying. I mean, they literally saw their friends and neighbours incinerated during the firebombing, and they'd all been you know, refugees, internally displaced people, and they, they were young as well. So, I mean, they weren't responsible in any way for the war. And so there was a combination of, of different things that made me realise that I probably was going to have to if I was going to do the things I was interested in, I would definitely have to leave Bishop Auckland and most likely County Durham as well. And you go on to apply to university. You end up studying at St Andrews, but not before you have an encounter at Oxford, where it sounds like you um, discovered, well, probably it wasn't your first discovery, but encountered Mean Girls. <laughs> could, could you tell us about that? Yeah, that was pretty Mean Girls. It was also very much an example of class. And I say in the book that I didn't have any clue about class, which is interesting, until I actually went to on that trip to Tübingen, because then people started from other schools, I've got private girls' schools and grammar schools, because it was a county-wide exchange uh, that was set up by Durham County Council. They started asking me, you know, where was I from? What did my father do? And what school did I go to? And I thought this was just, uh, first of all, an introduction. You know, why wouldn't you ask that? But then I realised after some of them stopped talking to me and some comments that were made that this was like a sorting exercise. I kind of like to sort of think about it as sort of, you know, an unfortunate equivalent of Harry Potter and the sorting hat. You know, and you find yourself in Slytherin, which isn't, you know, a very good thing to be. But in this case, I realised, huh, I'm not their sort. I'm not their class. What's going on here? And then, you know, of course, all the sort of discussions, you know, when you're a teen, you know, you get more steeped in politics and kind of figuring out uh, what's going on around you. So by the time I get to trying to apply for Oxford, which my school thought would be a good idea, it turned out to be not such a good idea because <laughs> nobody else had done this before. I realised that I am just completely the wrong class. I'm working class and that there's all of these connotations that come with it. And it's on really quite crude and brazen display when I get to Oxford with all the other girls who are you know, going there for a matriculation exam. They have obviously you know, not going also through the entrance exam, which I had tried and failed, but something must have sparked the interest of you know, Oxford and actually asking me for then an interview, possibly the fact that I was coming from one of the most poorly resourced and poor performing comprehensive schools in the whole of the UK. They thought they might give me an extra chance. But as soon as you know, I got there, it was, it was kind of comments on my clothes. I obviously was totally out of place. I had no idea what I was doing. Comments on my accent, pretending they couldn't understand me. And then as I kind of got up to my interview, you know, I, I still can't quite because I was so, by that time, you know, discombobulated and out of sorts. I don't know whether they stuck their foot out. The foot had been out there already that I didn't notice it, but I went flying over the foot of one of the girls and smashed my head on the door. You know, I totally lost my balance. The uh, professors, the the, uh, the Oxford Don's room where I was supposed to be interviewed, and I busted my nose. <laughs> Unfortunately, my grandma had made me always put a handkerchief, a little clean Kleenex up my sleeve, you know, just for emergencies. I never knew what that emergency was, but that was it. I was actually having to hold my nose and stop my nose from bleeding as I went in. So let's just say it did not go well. <laughs> but you do go to St. Andrews, study history and Russian. What were your first impressions when you got to St. Andrews? 
Well, first of all, St Andrews is just one of these magical places. You know, I don't know if anybody who's listening has ever been there, but I, I completely recommend it for a quick trip for golf. Yeah, you have yeah, golfing or studying. It's a, just a beautiful place. And my first impression was, my goodness, look at this incredibly sparkly place by the sea. Now, I went there on a dessert that was deceptively sunny and warm. So it wasn't like that the entire time. It is on, you know, the east coast of Fife on a little peninsula. It just get lashed by gales and, you know, weather at different points. But it was, you know, sometimes remarkably sunny and beautiful. You see the northern lights and seals on sands. And it's got the, the sands that is the opening sort of seen from chariots of fire, everyone running along, you know, so you could kind of pretend to put yourself in some ancient sporting event by running along there. But the whole experience educationally was it was an incredible door opener for someone like me ending up at a university like St Andrews. But I did find it very hard, the transition, because coming from a comprehensive school, I wasn't super well prepared for all of the classes. And I I've, I spent my entire time in the library, you know, basically cramming in a, I think, a state of perpetual panic. And I also did have terrible imposter syndrome because it was the sort of the mean girls effect. All the people who didn't get into Oxford and Cambridge who were at St Andrews from various private schools who kind of were sort of slightly resentful for being there, but it also had the benefits of a really, you know, amazing education. And obviously you're studying Russian as part of your degree. In 1987, you win a place on a government-funded exchange to Moscow. And you say in the book about almost um, finding a sense of recognition or at least the people there are perhaps more welcoming than some of the people you're meeting at university. I was wondering what you could, if you could talk us through, you know, your visit to Russia the first time and, and what happened. Well, talk about weird timing. So, I mean, I basically decided to study Russian in 1983, 1984 against the backdrop of the war scare, the Euro missile war scare. That was why I was always having nightmares about nuclear war. When I'd be out and about with my sister in a field somewhere, <laughs> we'd always be scoping out a ditch or some, you know, slight depression in the earth that we could throw ourselves into because we were sure the air, air raid siren <laughs> would go at any moment. Because this was a period that, you know, people tend to forget about constant warnings about the, the risk of nuclear war in popular culture. You know, you'd even get these films sent around kind of to the by the local education authority warning you about what to do in the event of nuclear war it was constantly on the te- television films books you know you name it about nuclear winter nuclear armageddon there was that just that, that sense of impending doom and I decided to go and study Russian against that backdrop almost as if to try to kind of fend off all of my fears and then when I get to Moscow in 1987 I get there just in time for Gorbachev and Reagan to sign the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty which ends this whole period of of war scares But I'm also obviously expecting the capital of the superpower, the scary superpower. And instead, I find myself in what's a kind seems to be just a larger version of the northeast of England in County Durham, my grandparents' old pit village, mining village. I think, what is this? This is, you know, of course, it's got the Bolshoi Ballet and the theatre and, you know, you name it, incredibly kind of amazing sort of Soviet achievements of culture. But it's also just like one giant big ramshackle village with even walking behind the foreign ministry building. I see people with chickens in the garden like my granddad has, you know, on his allotment in the northeast of England. And, you know, I find that all of the students, their parents have these vegetable plots on the outside of Moscow because there's just not enough food. And all of the shops are empty in the northeast of England at this point because of all the deindustrialization, the closing of the coal mines and steelworks and shipyards and everything. The shops aren't empty, but some of them have gone out of business and they're boarded up because nobody has any money to buy anything. And Soviet Union, it's the opposite. People have money, though not a lot, but, you know, basically there's nothing for them to buy in the shops because central planning has ground to a halt. And then all of the kids that I meet, even in these elite institutions, 
Um, some of them are obviously from the sort of quasi-aristocracy, you might call it, of the Communist Party, very different from the real aristocrats I meet in other settings at university in the, the UK. But a lot of them are like me. They're the kids of workers and people from collective farms who were just one generation away who are getting upward mobility in the Soviet system through education. And I get invited to, you know, go back to sometimes uh, their home village or, you know, meet their parents in these, you know, faceless blocks of uh, flats on the outskirts of Moscow next to some factory and people are just excited by the fact that I'm the daughter of a coal miner which seems to me random and weird because I'd gone to university in 1984 against the backdrop of the miners strike in the UK when the whole country was sort of grinding to a halt over this sort of massive industrial action and you know miners were, were kind of more reputed in the UK for striking than they were for the heights of sort of industrial achievement as you know they might have been in the past but there in the Soviet Union the country of workers and peasants the miners are a kind of working aristocracy and people were very excited kept introducing me to everybody and wanting to talk about you know what was life in the like in the coal mines, which of course I couldn't say directly. I mean, I wasn't the coal miner myself, but I just suddenly found doors open to me. It was very strange, you know, it was kind of counterintuitive. And the Soviet Union was falling apart. So all those fears I had disappeared. Now, it's interesting, as you say, talking about the different reactions you're getting in the UK compared to in Russia, because then you go and study later on in America and you're at Harvard. I was wondering, I mean, I think you've spoken about this more recently about how you feel... So you're more indebted to America as, as a country than the UK. But I wondered, how did you find studying in America in terms of how people perceived you? I know there was an incident with Ed Balls, perhaps, perhaps you mentioned. <laughs> yes. Um, but also in terms of outside of Ed Balls. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was whenever I counted, you know, fellow Brits who were often on the same scholarships at Harvard, they would always be very perplexed, you know, as to how would I got there and find it, you know, just bizarre. That was a reference to Ed Balls. He was always calling me Georgie Fiona, even though I pointed out that I actually wasn't from Newcastle. But anyway, but it always sort of felt, you know, again, oh, great, out of place yet again, even though I've moved to um, America, you know, trying to give things a sort of a fresh start and a fresh perspective. But the Americans... They would, you know, basically listen to me and say, oh, wow, what an accent. I could listen to you all day. I don't know what you're saying, but, you know, it sounds a great accent. You sound just like the Queen. And I'd be like, the Queen? The Queen doesn't sound like me. The Queen would be mortified. <laughs> but here in America, they, they could not discern, you know, one British accent from another. And, you know, as far as they were concerned, every Brit was a genius, which, again, <laughs> excuse me, no, not quite. But th th for them, there was just this incredible affinity with British culture. And all of the distinctions that, you know, the baggage, the the, the class, you know, kind of uh, the father was a coal miner. That was all great because America is the place where everybody reinvents themselves. And so there was just a, you know, open arms. You were given a sort of a fresh start and immediately just sort of absorbed into America with a kind of a melting pot. The thing I did notice, of course, is that that was not the case for everyone. So I get to Boston in 1989 and it's really coming to the end of a really very painful period in the history of Boston, of the desegregation of Boston public schools, where they were busing kids from across the city to, you know, turn some of the public schools from all white to they were supposed to be then, you know, mixed. But in fact, they ended up being all or mostly pre predominantly black, because as soon as uh, the desegregation happened, a lot of white residents of uh, inner city of Boston just moved out to the suburbs, or there was like a big backlash. So I found myself kind of stepping into Boston in a whole period where there was a lot of social upheaval 
and a lot of, you know, resentments that were kind of bubbling up. And Boston is a really segregated city in many respects, not just racially, but ethnically as well. Uh, you know, you have Italians in one part, Irish in another, Portuguese. There was a big influx of Haitian immigrants. And I was then suddenly made very aware of you know how different America you know was also from what I anticipated and what others might see you know from the outside. And I mean, you go on to obviously make America your home. And one of your roles, I mean, after that, you're working in the research department of the JFK School of Government. And during that period, you're also visiting Russia. And I, I just wondered, for listeners, I mean, you talked about watching the Soviet Union crumble. What's happening then, you know, in the 90s? What what changes are you seeing? Well, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and in the 1990s, Russia goes through this really wrenching period of change. You had the mass privatization of all of the industry, and you know, growing up in the northeast of England, everything was nationalized industry. I mean, I think people from you know the south tend to forget that the whole northeast and many other places as well in the uh, the UK, the Midlands, were dominated by nationalized industry. So that entrepreneurial spirit wasn't there. And you know, when it was privatized, people lost their jobs and weren't necessarily prepared for the whole new, modernized, you know, innovative, uh, you know, private sector. And that's exactly what happened in the Soviet Union. It was just sort of mass privatization all overnight, and the expectation that people who had been you know, basically working under the conditions of nationalised industry could transform themselves all in a very short period of time. And that period of dislocation led to periods of political polarisation in Russia as well. And I witnessed all of this at first hand. The, the country became bankrupt because the the shock therapy that uh, was anticipated to bring a new flourishing private sector, a kind of a rerun of 1980s Thatcherism or Reaganism in the United States just didn't turn out as planned. And, you know, by the end of that, Russia has lost not just its economic position, but it's also political and security position in Europe. We've had the pushing out of the remnants of the Soviet military out of uh, Eastern Europe, Germany and the Baltic states. And when you get then to the end of that decade in 1999, when Vladimir Putin gets appointed as a successor to Boris Yeltsin, Putin comes in there promising to make Russia great again. First to make the country solvent, basically get it out of the hock, out of bankruptcy, pay off all the debts that have been accumulated. But then as we see over the last 22 years, Putin basically trying to turn the foreign policy around and even to reverse some of those losses in Russia's political and security positions. And I write in the book, which I think has been somewhat unusual for others about the parallels of that with America now, because Putin thinks that America is where Russia was in the 1990s. Because there is also that long tail in the US of deindustrialization in what used to be the heartland of manufacturing sector in the, the, the Midwest. Massachusetts was like that when I first got there, closing down of textile mills, uh, auto manufacturing, big brickworks, things like this. But Massachusetts turns itself around, becomes a high-tech center. But there are you know, parts of the United States don't. They're like the northeast of England. The big manufacturing sectors get shrunken down. I mean, it's not privatized because everything's privatized in the United States, not nationalized industry. But you see the same kind of phenomenon. And that, of course, feeds into the populist politics that we saw leading to the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And with the now the fractious politic, you know, the pandemic, you know, the, the kind of attempts at recovery, the polarization of American socio-cultural life, the Russians and Putin look at that and say, ah, that's the 1990s in Russia. The United States is weak. 
the United States you know, pulls out of Afghanistan, which the Russians did at the end of the 1980s, which helped, helped to precipitate the you know, fall of the Soviet Union. And part of the current crisis that we're in is because of this sort of mirror imaging and uh, the Russians looking back to that time of troubles that they had that I witnessed at first hand and then thinking that it's a time to press the United States in the same way that they think the United States, NATO and you know Europe pressed them when they were down and out. That's fascinating and obviously this idea, yeah, what I imagine many Americans would dispute as, as this yeah. idea that they're <laughs> behind Russia in that sense. Now, Donald Trump does and for many of the reasons that uh, you just helped outline have become president and ultimately the president reaches out to you ahead of this because obviously we had limited time on this podcast so just um, right. you had already um served as a you know russia europe expert for the national intelligence council for both the bush and obama administrations but donald trump you know invites you into his were you surprised well, first of all, I just want to clarify that Donald Trump did not personally invite me. And I think, you know, until just quite recently, I don't think he still had a clue who I was, in spite of the fact that I'd appeared before him many times. And it was only really when the book got published that I think he kind of finally realised, oh, hang on a second. And he actually issued this um, bizarre declaration that basically tried to put some distance between him and me after the book was launched in October, basically saying I was terrible with my job. And I thought, wow, he did actually notice me. A a belated employment review and then called me a deep state stiff with a nice accent at the end of it. So that was kind of very strange because what happened was that I was approached by people I'd worked with previously when I'd been in the government with the National Intelligence Council under the Bush and Obama administration. And I was very surprised. I mean, these were people that I worked with at the National Intelligence Council, at the Directorate of National Intelligence, who were going in to sort of staff up the Trump administration because he didn't really have much of a Russia team. And you know, I, when I was first asked, I actually almost literally bit my tongue off in surprise <laughs> because I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? But then, you know, obviously, given what was going on, the Russian intervention in U.S. elections, all of the aggressive activities that we were seeing, having previously been in government, I felt that I absolutely had no choice but to do this. And, you know, it was the right thing to do. And to be frank, I would do it again given the circumstances. I wouldn't go in in 2024 if Trump comes back, but I would certainly under the circumstances that prevailed in 2016 go in again because it was really very important to try to work with you know a team of other people behind the scenes to try to push back on the Russian interference. You said it then and you said, you know, when your house is on fire, you've got to go in and save something. But what was the reaction like of, um, you know, friends of yours? I mean, obviously some of them are saying come in because they're friends you'd worked with. But did you have lots of people saying, you know, you you cannot do this, Fiona? Yeah. And I mean, I, I was warned by some people that they wouldn't speak to me again by doing it. I mean, they got why I wanted to do it, but they just found... Trump so reprehensible. They thought that any, you know, kind of effort to go in there, even if it was with the right motives, would, you know, in, in a sense, enable, you know, somebody who, from their perspective, was pretty ghastly. I, you know, obviously thought differently. I thought it was really worth, from the national security perspective, bearing in mind all of their warnings and caveats about Trump the person, which, you know, I saw myself. But I don't think anybody really fully appreciated just how flawed he was as an individual. Even some of the people who'd given me the warnings, they couldn't possibly have seen some of the things that were happening. And in fact, the, the situation on Russia was much more complex because many of these people warned me, firmly believed that, that Putin had elected Trump, the, the um, intervention in the election. I actually thought otherwise, and I still think that I'm correct that you know Trump was elected 
by Americans. Another reason for writing the book. There was a very narrow difference in the Electoral College, but that's a you know strange artifact of the 18th century political system that the United States has. And many people are talking about changing the Electoral College to get away from this outcome of where a president does not win the popular vote, but wins by a very narrow margin. In Trump's case, in 2016, of 70,000 votes in three counties in three states. All of those were counties in, in states that had been deindustrialized and looked, you know, very much like the northeast of England. And it was people's grievances, not fake personas created by Russian intelligence on the internet that had pushed in favour of Trump. His support was much more complex than they gave it credit for. But he did turn out to be obsessed with Putin on, on a personal level, not with Russia, but obsessed with Putin because of Putin being the sort of strongman autocrat. And ultimately, that's how he wanted to run the United States as well. He wanted to be rich, strong, powerful, and essentially running the countries if he was running his own highly personalized business. It was kind of like branding the US as kind of Trump Inc., which was very disturbing. And, you know, if I hadn't been there and seen this at first hand, I wouldn't have been able to, in many respects, bear witness to it either, either in the impeachment uh, hearings in 2019, or, you know, as, as I've done recently, speaking out about, you know, what I'd seen. And you'd obviously worked in previous administrations. And I wondered, what was it like briefing Trump on Russia, on Putin? Um, you mentioned that he already had very strong opinions on Putin. Are you coming in with someone who doesn't really want to listen to what you say unless it matches theirs? He has no interest in listening to anybody, honestly. It was impossible to brief Trump. If the, the, the people that he occasionally would listen to from the intelligence uh, community were people, again, I'd worked with and knew very well. I mean, he would listen to them to a point. You know, he they, they actually had the director of central intelligence themselves come in, you know, to do briefings for him. First of all, Mike Pompeo and then Gene Haspel. But mostly he tended to go with his gut or, you know, listen to people on Fox News or his cast of friends or just weird people who would get his attention. And we saw that during the impeachment hearings. These, you know, Ukrainian Americans, Lev Parnas and Iga Fruman, who got his ear because they were donors to the Republican Party. My pillow guy, the guy who basically, you know, developed my pillow, Rudy Giuliani, the former, you know, mayor of uh, New York who seems to have become slightly mad, a character out of some, you know, Shakespearean play of kind of King Lear or something, you know, who's gone become deranged over time and he gets uh, Trump's ear. Trump did not want to hear from anybody who became his staff. And it was the same with you know, someone like Rex Tillerson, who'd been the CEO of arguably one of the largest, most powerful countries in the world of ExxonMobil, who then becomes Secretary of State and gets ignored roundly by Trump as well. You know, he he was more likely to listen to him when he was the CEO than when he became the Secretary of State. From Trump's point of view, everyone was a secretary, not the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defence, but a secretary who was in the typing pool. And once you became his staff, you were his staff in the same way you might be a staff at a country club. You were the guy who was the golf caddy or you were the, you know, the, the woman who was in the concierge staff behind the scenes. And so... Anything that any of us had to say was just totally discounted. Now, you mentioned how hard it is to get someone like Trump to listen to you. So if you take his view on Russia, which you obviously would have to have dealt with many times, was any, what do you think he got right? Do you think he got anything right on Russia and Putin? Yeah, he understood that Putin was the guy you had to deal with, which you know many other presidents have uh, realized before that there was a sort of a vertical of power and it was very vertical and if you know that it wasn't working at the top it wasn't going to work anywhere else but then what he tried to do was pander to Putin 
because he was obsessed with who Putin was. I mean, he saw Putin as, you know, thinking about the name of this podcast, the ultimate man with balls. <laughs> and that's basically, you know, what he wanted to project as well, this power, strength, you know, rich, you know, running a country like your own business. And obviously, you know, he saw Putin as an iconic figure on the world stage, which, you know, arguably he is. But of course, he's also a KGB, you know, operative, somebody who manipulates people for a living. And that's what he was trying to do with Trump. And so what Trump got wrong was his idea that he could charm Putin and manipulate Putin as he had done with other people's business. That was wrong. But the other thing that Trump really wanted to do was he wanted to have a deal with the Russians on nuclear arms. So that kind of ties back to my own, you know, interest as a, you know, as a kid uh, during war scare of trying to figure out how to learn Russian to try to put maybe that relationship on a different track. Trump actually understood that it was very important to engage with the Russians on arms control, but what he kept getting wrong was that you know, he wasn't prepared to do his homework for this. He wanted to sit down with Putin and have the kind of discussion that Gorbachev and Reagan were having, you know, when I got to the Soviet Union in 1987. And in fact, you know, all the way along in the 1980s, he tried to present himself as even the arms control negotiator for Reagan. He, he just thought, thought if he could get a time to sit down with Gorbachev or anybody else, he would be able to fix this. And he might have had a chance with it, with Putin, for example, if he'd been more disciplined, but also if it hadn't been for the Russian intervention in our politics in 2016, then the way he handled it. He took everything personally, and he actually made the situation a thousand times worse every time by being so defensive about the idea that the Russians might have got him elected. And he kind of played into Russia's hands of manipulation as well as into the domestic politics at all times. He just couldn't get over himself, you know, to basically be able to do the things that he wanted to do. Now, I want to end by coming back to you and your career. And ultimately, yes, Trump and Putin have met, but you've also met Putin on a number of occasions. What's your impression of him? I mean, I just wonder in the sense that there was a piece when you were beginning in your career that you wrote for the New York Times saying, stop blaming Putin and start helping him, which at the time was seen as fairly controversial, though it also got you noticed and led to opportunities. I'll just, just point out that the New York Times, like many publications, probably including The Spectator, choose the titles themselves. And they didn't give me much of an option on that. It's one, always so. worth pointing yeah. out. Yeah, you, you don't get to write your own headlines. Yeah, you don't get to write your own headlines. And I was actually appalled by that headline because there was more nuance in the piece in that. Because it was really after the horrible tragedy of Beslan when the children you know, in the school were all taken hostage. And basically, we'd been putting an awful lot of pressure on uh, you know, the Russian system over Chechnya, right, rightly so in many respects, because of you know the, the, the Russian approach to resolving the Chechen conflict, which was really by force. But there was also kind of larger sets of dimensions going on there about the you know complexity of inter-ethnic politics. And then you know what we were already seeing, which was the sort of Islamicization of the conflict in Chechnya and the moving as you know kind of it was becoming apparent of you know al-Qaeda and other you know groups trying to try to exploit and take advantage of the Chechen conflict as well and that kind of played out over a, a period of time that became more apparent and so it was kind of trying to sort of signal that maybe we should try to take something of a different approach you know to try to engage the Russians on this now might not also have been very possible because I've also learned over time that Putin was less interested in compromise than you know it might have perhaps seen you know, on the backdrop of that tragedy back in 2004. You know, as we kind of move on over time, we sort of see that uh, what Putin wanted to do was resolve most conflicts completely on his own terms. And in Chechnya, in fact, I mean, after the FSB, the successor entity to the KGB, took charge of Chechnya, there was a very brutal suppression 
of the Chechen national movement and in fact the sponsoring of Russia's own Islamists under the person of Ramzan Kadyrov who basically runs Chechnya now in almost a feudal sense of fealty to Putin on an individual level but in some sort of perverse almost Islamic caliphate of his own invention to the kind of most distressing outcome that you could possibly have in Chechnya and it's a rogue enclave inside of, of Russia now not even fully incorporated back and when we look at what's happening in Ukraine and in other parts of the former Soviet space what the Russians have done and Putin has done is completely leverage those conflicts so where I might have had you know some hope wasn't naive because I was pretty steeped in what was going on in Chechnya, but some hope that we might be able to find some different approach to this and some kind of way of sort of compromising and even working with the Russians on the resolution of some of these conflicts. It's now completely apparent, and here we are 16, 17, 18 years later, that um, Putin sees all of the regional conflicts as a source of leverage and wants to have if there's any kind of resolution, it has to be completely on their terms. And so any structures that we've had of trying to work with them are just completely, they're not useless, but they're not going to lead to an outcome. And that's what we see in Ukraine right now. All the discussions that we actually have about solutions, formats, you know, kind of structured engagement with the Russians and negotiations, we have to be crystal clear about there are limits you know, to what we can achieve in those formats. They're worth trying. But that, you know, the Russian government is always looking for a way under Putin. It might change over time. Gorbachev was very different <clears throat> from the people who preceded him. Under Putin, he wants to make sure that anything that is resolved is on his terms. And so we're going to have to sort of chip away at that and you know, basically be in for the long haul and trying to shape events. And you mentioned clearly Putin seeing in America and I would imagine more widely the West a weakness. I think Afghanistan has shown that alliances that at some point have seen all powerful are no longer such. I wondered strategically for Putin, what do you think is more important to Russia when it comes to, I suppose, things such as we have a situation where Germany, for example, takes a much softer line, at least appears, when it comes to the European response to Russia. And that's partly linked, obviously, to energy dependence. Then you also have right now in the UK a lot of discussion about Russian dirty money. The fact London has enabled that. Do you think both of those things are important to Putin in terms of keeping going as he is? Because uh, you can see perhaps where there was unity, one could be closed off more than the other. Yeah, it's important to have leverage, always to be able to maximise your position and maximise your options. And you know what you just said about London is is extremely important. Putin's view is he can buy anyone, that we're just full of it, basically. Uh, all of our talk about values and principles and transparency and ethics is just hubris at best. And, you know, basically more likely to just be complete hypocrisy because he looks at not just the UK and Germany, but you know, the United States and everywhere as well. And he knows that he can buy former politicians of former leaders of countries and, you know, basically put them on the boards of Russian companies or basically put them on the payroll and then influence their politics. And at every turn, Putin thinks that he can influence us and that he can buy us and that he can coerce us, intimidate us and if we can't be bought. And, you know, basically, our important thing for us is to show that that's not the case. Just a final two questions for me. I just wonder on that, what do you think actually the West can do here? Because it feels a little bit to me as though, mm. perhaps, and you'll know this more, but 
in the US, there are plenty on the right who seem to think that China is by far the bigger issue. And there are some, you know, commentators on the right who will play down the threat of Russia. So do you think America does need to play a big role when it comes to tackling Russia? Or does Europe have to, you know, take on more responsibility? Well, Russia's now made itself part of the China equation during this recent visit to the Beijing Olympics and the statement with Xi in which he gets President Xi of China to actually talk about his opposition to NATO enlargement and you know, comment on what's happening in Europe, which is you know, pretty unusual. So Russia's also trying to build up its global posture again, often through subversion. The use of paramilitary companies like the Wagner Group dirty money, bribing, you know, kind of paying off, uh, you know, with all kinds of visits and, you know, loans and um, investments, not on the scale of China, of course, because with China, it's all scale and, you know, a system alternative. Russia isn't trying to be a system alternative, but it's trying to kind of make sure that it has leverage everywhere. You know, having Bolsonaro of Brazil come to basically for a visit, Venezuela, Nicaragua, you know, countries that are on the outs with the United States, all over Africa, you know, being in Libya and North Africa, in Mali, when the French pull out because they can't get traction in Mali, smaller number of Russian paramilitaries move in, bandwagoning with China. You know, Russia's trying to make itself part of that whole equation so it cannot be ignored. So we cannot ignore Russia. We have to figure out what to do. And one of the things that we really have to do is clean up our own act. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to say it, but people like George Osborne's consulting company should not take contracts with companies that belong to Russian oligarchs like Oleg Dedepaska, for example. Gerhard Schroeder, former Chancellor of Germany, absolutely should not be on the board of Gazprom. But, you know, maybe on some of those things, we can't do anything about that. It's individual ethics, you know, become a bit of a problem as well. But the Conservative Party, Labour Party, you name it, any party should not be taking campaign contributions from people with ties to Russia. The United States, same thing. Shell companies that are set up in bizarre places like South Dakota, you know, shouldn't be handling, you know, Russian money. We have to be very, very careful about you know what we're doing here. We need the legal basis in place to push back against all of this because Putin and Russia look at looks at that. The Chinese do the same thing. We had you know Senator Lieberman in the United States on the board of a Chinese telecommunications company. They look at that, China and Russia both and and others, and say, "Well, what are you talking about?" This is all just political games because when it really comes down to it, you guys will take our money any day. So we have to show that that's not the case. We have to be able to blunt the effect of influence because they believe that all of those people will become advocates for Russian positions and that they will push back and roll back sanctions and that they will constrain their governments from actually taking any action. You know, just at the height of the crisis with Ukraine, Putin was basically holding court with a delegation of top Italian business leaders, for example, just showing that he believes that Italy's in his pocket, just as it was when Sergio Berlusconi was at the head of Italian politics. So we engage in self-defeating actions, activities all the time. Now, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. I could ask you 20 more questions. But um, the final <laughs> question I'm going to ask you is one we ask everyone, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given during, I suppose, well, your life really? <laughs> Well, there was two pieces of advice that I've, I've thought about. One was when I was, you know, kind of a, a teenager, uh, you know, in that kind of whole period of 
thinking about life outside of Bishop Auckland. And, you know, somebody said to me, you know, you really need to do something with your hair. It's very fine. This is on some trip to a hairdresser. You should have a perm. Oh, my God, what a disaster. I look like a poodle. And I basically had to keep having it, you know, kind of cut back, cut back until, you know, kind of it had all disappeared because people laughed at me and you know, the entire time. So that was bad advice. You know, when somebody gives you some, you know, sort of appearance advice, just ignore it. Just, you know, kind of. And then later on in life, we often being told, just wing it, go with your gut. And that's often, you know, really bad advice because, you know, then you're not prepared for circumstances. And notice myself when I'm thinking about Donald Trump, who gives himself that advice all the time, he often would, you know, sometimes he might have the the right kind of gut reaction to something. But then when he was winging it, it was an absolute disaster. Because even if your gut tells you that, you know, something might be the right course of action, then you need to be well prepared. So whenever I've just been told to just go with your gut, wing it, it's always turned out really badly. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. Thank you.